Welcome to the Upper Perkiomen Community Church Podcast. Join us on Sundays at 258 Main Street, East Greenville, Pennsylvania. Refreshments at 9 a.m. Worship at 9.30 a.m. Or visit us online at upcconline.org. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy our teaching time with our special guest speaker. Well, good morning. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day, um, for this day where we can come together as a family and hear your stories, grow in faith, get to know you more, share our love together, share your love with others. And Lord, to just enjoy this, this life. Lord, I pray for anyone who's suffering and distracted this morning. Lord, that you would bring them a peace, a peace that passes understanding. Lord, we petition you for that, that you bring a peace on those who are in pain, those who are in distress, those who are in despair, and that you would help them to, to come to you this morning and to engage with your word and the message that you have for us. In your name, amen. That video was cool, wasn't it? So it's, it's David and Goliath, so I'm really excited uh, to be here. I was kind of nervous. Um, until I got here, and then I, I saw all these people I love, and I'm like, oh, this is awesome. Um, and so I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. Uh, thank you for, for helping me with that. Um, but I heard about coming here and uh, that you guys were going through the book of Samuel. Is it First Samuel and Second Samuel? Just First Samuel. Um, and uh, the week that it turned, that worked out for me to come was First Samuel 17, and it's like David and Goliath, and I'm like, oh, it's David and Goliath. Oh, it's David and Goliath. <laughs> And it's, it's a big chapter, but it's also everybody knows David and Goliath. Like, what am I going to say that uh, I'd like to, to, to bring something? But everybody knows the story. Um, but that just shows my lack of faith because even as I was watching the video, like, I've, I've, this, this was a lot of work for me to, to prepare this message um, for a number of reasons. But even as I was watching the video, I was seeing new things in the story. And I'm like, I, I was so naive. In, the, in, in thinking, like, everybody knows this story. There's nothing more to, to learn about it. I'm just going to be repeating, facing your giants, and uh, God loves the underdog, all those kind of messages. But actually, like, God just showed me again that his word is a bottomless mine of awesomeness, just, just riches. And even stories that are so familiar, maybe one of the first Bible stories that you've ever heard, there's still more, there's still more there. There's still more riches and so, um, and I was just thinking about this morning, I'm thinking, isn't it great for families to come together and just share stories? Isn't that, isn't that a great thing? I love doing that with my kids. It's like my, probably one of my kids' favorite times with us. And that's what we're doing. You know, we're coming to the Father and we're, and we're just sharing a story together as a family and learning from, from that story. Um, but in the midst of those stories, the, God's telling us these stories so that some of that story or that you enter into his story and that some of what you learn from this story can become your story. Um, and what I want, really want to drive today is, is seeing this story with the eye of faith. Um, I think you'll be captivated by the God that you see in the depths of the story more than you'll be captivated by the character of David on the surface of the story. Um, because I usually look at David and, oh, isn't he so courageous? He's so awesome. David, rah, 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 and all that kind of stuff, and, that, and that's true, and that's good, 
But there's more to it. There's a God within this story who actually is more captivating than the character of David. And that's what I really want to bring out or try to bring out. And that's what this story has has done to me. Um, And so here's a little bit of a tool. Um, I I teach a lot at at Off the Wall. And uh, one of the things that I love to teach about is just how to get more out of your Bible. Um, And so here's a a quick sort of... uh, tool that you can use. I totally stole this from the Bible Project, so if you want to know more about it, just go on to the Bible Project, go to their series on how to read the Bible, and they have four videos on how to read biblical narrative, because this is a story, this is biblical narrative, and they, they give you four tools um, to look at a story and think about the plot, and what a plot is, a plot is an arc of the story, where usually there's an introduction of characters, an increasing tension, a climax, uh, and then a resolution, and a, then your conclusion. And so when you think about a story, think about how it arcs, how the plot works out. And the second thing is the setting, and the setting creates expectations. It creates um, what, what do you think is going to happen. Um, it, uh, it helps you to, to generate memories um, of previous stories. Um, so, for example, if, if uh, the, a story is set in a haunted house, you know, what's going to happen? It sets certain expectations of, of uh, a thriller or some kind of, somebody's going to be scared at some point in time. Um, the next one is characters. And th- think about the, the characters, the different characters that there are in the story. Um, and characters are, are, in the Bible are very complex. They're not caricatures of good and evil like Superman and Lex Luthor. They're very complex people, and you'll see some complexity in Samuel for sure. They help you to connect with your story and theirs. That is almost like a mirror that you look at, um, and it helps you to, to see a path maybe through some circumstances that you're facing. Um, what a character does helps you to maybe see what your path could be. And the fourth one is then patterns. Um, the Bible Project calls these design patterns within a story, and you see these recurring patterns um, in the Bible, and what that helps you to, to understand is the, the big themes, the big themes that a story is, is telling you. And so here's, here's a little uh, piece of, of uh, a little gem that I, I learned. The Bible has hyperlinks. Do you know what a hyperlink is? If you're ever on a website and you're reading and then all of a sudden there's a word written in blue and it's underlined and if you click on it, it takes you to a new website. So the Bible has hyperlinks. It has certain words that repeat and when you see certain words, as the more you read the Bible, you'll notice that there are these little hyperlinks. And when you see this word, you'll think, ah, I remember that word from a different story. There was a different story that was all about that word. And then you'll see these design patterns and you'll see the, this consistency uh, throughout a book, but throughout the Bible as a whole as well. And you'll see certain images and patterns. Um, and so does that make sense? That there's, when you read a story, think about its plot. Think about the setting that it's, that it's placed within. Think about the characters, and then think about the, the patterns that you see from different stories or within a story. And I'm going to do that with you this morning as we come and read this story. Um, so let's look at the plot. Samuel, the book of Samuel, actually, first and second Samuel was on all one book. It was divided into two because the scroll ran out. <laughs> and, and so, <laughs> that's true. Um, <laughs> and so you have to look at Samuel as all the way from the start of first Samuel to the end of second Samuel. Um, and David and Goliath, the, the question then would be, what's the plot arc of the whole of First and Second Samuel, and where does David and Goliath fit into that? Um, I'm not going to go over this story again because we've seen it in the video, but where does that fit in? 
Well, you have, you'll remember Hannah, and who had Samuel. Samuel then became the, the last of the judges. Remember, it was a very dark period in the Bible in the judges' time. And then you had uh, the, people, the people demanded a king. God gave them Saul. And Saul is rising to, to power. But then he disobeyed. I think the last few weeks you've, you've, been, uh, you've been hearing about his disobedience. And God gives a promise in the midst of that. I'm going to look for a man after my own heart. That's very important. That, that occurs. That's a hyperlink that occurs different times in the Bible. Um, so God is looking for a man after his own heart. But, but Saul hasn't been removed yet. And actually, David is anointed king, even while Saul is, is still king. So you see in this, in this uh, plot arc, you see that Saul is rising to power, but then starts to descend. And then you have David entering. And would it have been last week you talked about his anointing and, and what kind of person he was? And then uh, you have this story of David and Goliath. And this is where David shoots into fame, into the public eye, and this is the story that really launches him as a king. Um, then what we see is the emergence of this, this king. It's not the king that the people chose. Um, it's the king that God chose, a man after his own heart. Um, and David and Goliath is the story that brings him up. But he keeps on rising until the climax of the book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, both books. The climax, does anybody know where the climax would be? It's in 2 Samuel, I think it's 7, where, David, where God brings a new covenant. He makes a covenant with David to be the king and promises that his king will stay on the throne forever and his kingdom will be established forever. It's whenever David comes and says, God, I have this awesome house. I want to build you a house. You live in a tent and I want to build you a temple. And God says, no, I'm going to build you a house, a house meaning a family, a line, a legacy, and that's where the book really climaxes. And, but then after that, you have David and Bathsheba. And so now David, David's rise starts to fall. See how these characters are complex? They're not these simple, good, and bad people. David starts to, to descend, and his family turns into a mess. Um, and then you have a section at the end of 2 Samuel, which is the epilogue. It kind of tells you but, um, how the, it packs the story together for you. But Samuel has this awesome structure. At the start, you have Hannah's poem or song. Do you remember that? Might have been a while ago. But at the end of 2 Samuel, you also have David's song. And these songs are like bookends on the story. And actually, they tell you about what the story's about. They tell you the theme of both of these stories of, of within 1 and 2 Samuel. Because when I heard about David and Goliath, it was kind of a standalone story. I didn't really know where it fitted into the bigger story. I didn't really know what it was. I knew some of the things that it was about, but as I've learned more of it as an adult, I've learned, oh, there's, there's a lot more in here. There's a lot more kind of richness in the story. And so that's the plot. It's the plot arc, the rising tension, the which king, which kings are going to be, who's the man after God's own heart, and then God's covenant with, with David, and then it falls down into... Um, and a further expectation, the book of Samuel ends with, we need help. <laughs> we still need help, uh, the, the kingdom of Israel. So within the story of, of David, you have this plot arc as well. There's a plot arc within just 1 Samuel 17, but that fits into a bigger plot. And actually, 
the Bible as a whole. It fits into the, the story of the Bible as a whole, and I'll talk about that a little bit, bit later. Um, but think about this story. It's kind of strange. I mean, sometimes familiarity makes you kind of miss that this is a very strange story, that there's this standoff between two rivals, um, and this is moving into the setting, but this, this giant, this Goliath guy, he's nine foot nine inches tall. Like, <laughs> that's a pretty big dude, right? And he's got swords and, and armor, and uh, he's, he's incredibly big. Uh, and then you've got this little weedy guy who's got red hair. He's, you know, he's a ginger. We make fun of ginger people. My, my family are ginger, so I'm allowed to do that. Um, and... Uh, You've got this unarmed, no armor guy with a slingshot against this huge, big dude, and he beats him with a stone, and you're like, it's kind of weird, you know? That, that's, that's a little bit strange. This, this maybe a teenage boy uh, beats him. Something miraculous is going on here. Something more to this story. There's something behind it. This isn't just surprising. This is surprising in a way that should lead you to think there's something more in this story. There's a deeper narrative going on here. There's something miraculous. God's behind it. And if you're reading the story over and over again, it says the battle belongs to the Lord. There's another hyperlink. The Bible says that a lot of times. And um, you're supposed to see that. And really what you're supposed to see in these stories is that you've got David and Saul and Goliath. There's another character in this story, and actually the character, this character who's between the lines and then sometimes mentioned is the character of Yahweh or God. And in the Bible, that's a, a special thing about biblical narrative is that God is a character in the story. And so when you're thinking about biblical stories, think about the character of Yahweh. What's, what's, how is he working into this? What's, what's happening between them? So two arch enemies on two hills, valley between, the valley of Eli, Elah, it's called. Elah means oak or strength. Don't, don't know what that means, just thought it was interesting. Um, and these, this huge human coming to and uh, calling them into battle. And so ancient warfare was sometimes done that way. They didn't like having a big battle because lots of people died and then people, there's no one to like feed each other. So sometimes they would have a champion from one side come and challenge another champion from the other side, and whoever won then would win the battle, and it meant there was a lot less bloodshed. So sometimes that happened. Um, actually, there was a piece of pottery found in Israel, which was written in, um, it was from the uh, 1000 BC, or nine, between 1000 and 900 BC, and it's written in a Philistine language, and it says the word Goliath on it. Like you can go to a museum and see that. I thought that was interesting too. Don't know what it means, but I thought it was interesting. Um, and you have these people and they're greatly terrified. And this guy comes out and says, give me a champion and I'll beat anybody you have. And that happened for how long? 40 days and 40 nights. Have you heard that before? There's another hyperlink. What, hap what, what, what is the Bible doing when it says this happened for 40 days and 40 nights? This is the setting, it's creating an expectation. So what else happened in 40 days and 40 nights? Noah on the flood, what else? Jesus' temptation, yeah? What, what other things happened in a 40 year period, the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, right? And so, is that what you're gonna say? No. Yeah. 
Okay, okay, didn't know that. Um, and so you have this period of time, and, and when, it's, when it comes to the story and says this happened for 40 days and 40 nights, what your expectation should be, God's going to do something. Something's going to happen. Some, and the people don't know what to do. They don't want to send anybody to fight Goliath. They're just waiting. They're terrified. They're paralyzed into fear. So that's the setting you have, that, um, that something's going to happen. And so then here's the real meat of the story. So I told you in the plot arc of, um, of the book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, what you have in this period of time with David and Goliath is a crossover where you have Saul's kingdom, Saul's role as a king descending and David ascending. So you, this is the point of crossover where uh, David starts to rise to fame. And so in this story of the whole story of Samuel, the most crucial part of this story of David and Goliath is the contrast between Saul and David. And so to really get what the, the author is trying to tell you, you have to look at the character of Saul and the character of David and go, what am I being told here? And so as I've looked at it in, with this tool, this Bible project tool that um, I'm telling you about, I see the name Saul. That Saul Saul's name means the one asked for. David's name means beloved. And so remember Saul was the king that the people asked for. God says, that's not a good idea, but okay, here you go. He was the one the people asked for. Who was David? The man after God's own heart. So you see these characters coming together. Saul was from Benjamin. David was from the tribe of Judah. And so if you know your Bible, you'll know that Jacob gave a prophecy over his 12 sons, and he prophesied that Judah, the king, would come from Judah. So if you know your Bible and you find out that Saul was chosen to be king, you'll be very surprised. You'll be like, but he's from the tribe of Benjamin. And so the one, that, that, the one prophesied is supposed to come from the tribe of Judah. Here he is. So if you know your Bible and then you hear that David's from the tribe of Judah, you'll be thinking, ah, oh, that's the one God wants, the beloved one. Saul was very tall and very handsome. Um, David seems to be young and small, like Saul's armor didn't fit him. He was smaller, he was kind of ruddy. Uh, we think he was redheaded. And we don't really know a lot about Saul's character. It, it doesn't really tell you much, but it says in the previous chapter in 1 Samuel 16 that David uh, was a brave soldier. He was a good fighter. He cho chose his words carefully. We know he wrote a lot of Psalms and they're beautiful. Some of them have you know, gone down thousands of years later, we're still reading them. He was musically gifted. Um, he was sensitive to the emotions of Saul when he was troubled by the evil spirit. And so the, two, the characters, Saul seems like this empty shell of a guy. He's just this good-looking guy who has nothing really going on inside him. He doesn't really have many deep qualities. He's, he's just a bit of a pretty boy. Um, but David, we have this guy who's, who seems to be full of ability and, and richness in his soul. And Saul is often fearful. He was afraid of the people. Do you remember when he was... Uh, when he was brought forward to say, you're the king, he was hiding, remember? So he's, he's quite afraid of people. Um, and he offered the sacrifice because he was afraid of what the people would do. He's a guy that's full of a lot of fear. Um, but you have David, who was fearless in this story of, of, uh, with Goliath. And you have um, Saul, who's afraid of being ridiculed by the people and so disobeyed God because he was afraid of people. But then you have David who came up, and in this story, his brother, his elder brother, says, what are you doing here? You're just here to 
watch the fight um, go back to those sheep. But he didn't let ridicule bother him because he had courage. He had a confidence that Saul didn't have. And do you see the, the, the setting? As I'm reading the story in a deeper way, I'm, I'm seeing that it's, it's like everybody's standing still except David. It's like for 40 days and 40 nights, the world came to a halt and the people were paralyzed with fear. No one was going to challenge this guy, Goliath. He came out every day. But what does it say about David? Early in the morning, he rose and went to the battlefield. Then it says he ran out to Goliath. And then it said he ran up and chopped his head off. You've got this, this character of David who's, who's running about. He's causing, the, he's causing the movement. He's making things happen. And everyone else is paralyzed with fear. That, that's the, in the story as you read it, that, that's the kind of image that is coming to you in this setting. You have um, Saul who really didn't understand God's character. He saw God as this means to getting what you wanted. He saw the, the sacrament. Remember he was... Um, he was chastised for God doesn't de demand sacrifice. He demands obedience. There's another hyperlink. That happens over and over and over again in the Bible. God demands, wants obedience and a contrite heart, not, not sacrifice. But Saul didn't get that. And David did. David's heart was all about obedience. For David, obedience was better than sacrifice. So you have these two characters who understand God in different ways. Saul seems to be proud he gathered people. He wanted strong people to be around him. David wanted faithful people to be around him. And even just the, I, I always wondered, why does it tell me the story about Saul's armor not fitting David? And, and I'm thinking, God's telling me that the old ways, the old armor, the old clothes are not going to fit with the new king. The old ways of Saul don't work with the new ways of David. He's the king that's after God's own heart. He's the king that God chose, not the king that the people chose. And then you have David's speech. So it's kind of like you've got Goliath and David smack talking one another. You know, I'm feeding you to the birds. No, I'm feeding you to the birds. You know, it's like uh, some re two wrestling guys or like uh, two uh, boxers smack talking each other. But with David, you see in... Um, there's a key part in 1 Samuel 17, 45 to 47. You see that Saul cared about his own honor. David was, was single-minded on God's honor. He wasn't seeking his own. He was seeking God's honor. Saul sought Saul's honor. Saul had no hope because he couldn't see past the circumstances of the giant. But David had a different view of reality. He had a very hopeful view of reality. He saw the world differently. And he knew, he knew that God was going to deliver this, this giant into there. He knew who was going to win the battle before it even started. And I'm wondering, how did he know? Because he knew who God was and he knew where his faith came from. Saul didn't understand his role as king, but David understood how God wins battles, not by sword or spear, but by the power of God, there's another hyperlink. The Bible says that over and over again. Not through force, but through love. And there's some messianic pointing to Jesus. Not through overpowering the Romans. Will I conquer this world and become the king of kings, but through sacrifice. 
And so there's, there's the two characters. You see what this story is telling you about? It's telling you about the heart of God. It's telling you what God, what God wants, how to, how, what it looks like to follow God with the heart that David descri- describes and, and shows, not with the heart that Saul has. And that brings out the major themes that we see throughout the book. So go back and read Hannah's song at the start of the, the book of, of 1 Samuel and go to the end of 2 Samuel and read David's song and, and look at what it's saying to you over and over again. What did it say? What did Hannah say? You, ex- you bring down the proud, but you have elevated the humble over and over again because she was this humble, barren woman and God showed her favor and gave her a son which started the book of Samuel. And that's the whole theme of the Bible. It's the whole theme of the book of Samuel as well, that God exalts the humble and brings low the proud. Do you see Sam, Saul, the proud king, and David, the humble king? And that's a theme that's, that you're trying to be taught, that is trying to be taught to you through this story of David and Goliath. Another uh, key verse is, the previous chapter, um, was it the previous chapter? Yes, when uh, God tells Samuel to go to Jesse and he anoint one of his sons, and the first son comes out, and Samuel says, oh, this guy's awesome, it's got to be this guy. And God, what does God say to him? Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Remember Saul is this shell, he's the good-looking pretty boy with nothing really, nothing much going on inside. David's this, doesn't look like much, but he's got a lot going on inside. Man looks at the outward appearance. What, what are the whole Israelites doing? They're looking at the outward appearance, the giant. They're not looking behind it. They're not looking with the eyes of faith to see what's, 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 what's going on, what's, what more is going on here. Where is God here? You see that theme? Now I'm starting to, this is starting to convict me. Do I just look at the outward appearance? Yes, I do, all the time. And what happens when you look at the outward appearance? What happened to the, the Israelites? And what happened to Saul when they were just captivated by the outward appearance? They became afraid, paralyzed. But what happened when David, when he looks at the heart of God and he looks with faith at what's really going on, he runs to the battlefield. I know what's going to happen. The battle belongs to God. He's going to deliver us. Which comes on to then another theme. So God exalts the humble, brings low the proud. Um, that man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. Trust in a strong God who is able to deliver Hannah's song and David's song, you have delivered, you are stronger. What you're doing is stronger than what anybody else can do. You can overcome. And what's the, in the climax of the book of Samuel, what do you see? This king who then gets a promise, but his kingdom starts to fall away. But yet God is still able to do his, act out his will even when people mess it up and are evil. And you have this strong God who is able to overcome. 
and then the, the prophecy that appears throughout the books of the Bible, a Messiah is on their way. And so as you look, hopefully that helps you to see the book of, the story of David and Goliath within the context of Samuel with a little bit more clarity and see what the author is trying to tell you through the story of David and Goliath. But I want to step back and move out again. What's, what's the book of, where does the book of Samuel fit in? Well, you have, read, this, read the Bible like a story. Don't read it like a textbook. Don't read it like an ethics book or philosophy book because it'll be really, really boring. That's why I didn't read it for years and years, and that's maybe why a lot of you don't read it, because you're not reading it like a story. It's a story before it's a theology textbook. It's a story before it's anything about philosophy or ethics. Read it like a story, because it's a story that you can't put down, because you're involved in it. It's a story that involves you. And look at the plot arc of the Bible. You're introduced to the characters, Yahweh and the, and the people made in the image of God. They fall, you know, the Garden of Eden. They're cast out of the Garden of Eden. And then God comes back and, and makes a covenant with a chosen person, with Abraham. He says that this covenant will come through faithfulness. Then you have Abraham's descendants, Jacob. And there's a prophecy I've already mentioned to Jacob where he says that the Judah will be a king. There's, they don't even have a, a nation. They're just tribes. Why are you talking about a king? But it's a prophecy of the future. Then you have God's chosen people delivered from Pharaoh, an act of pure grace on God's, on God's behalf to free the people. Then he establishes those people with all of these laws and a new covenant on Sinai, and, and he, his presence comes back to them in the tabernacle. So now you have a restoration of the, the, um, the distance between man and God starting to be restored through the old covenant and through the tabernacle. And then you've got that, this presence of God goes in front of the people with the ark and they conquer the new land and they have a new, a new place. Uh, but then it's a dark time of judges because everybody, did, everybody forgot the law and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And then you have Samuel, the last of the judges, coming up and saying, here's the king. And here's the king. Can you still hear me? Cut out there. Um, and this is the king after God's own, own heart, the king that will be referenced over and over again that we're talking about 3,000 years later. David is the type of king that God wants, and there's a prophecy that the seed that was prophesied in the Garden of Eden and the, the prophecy to, to Abraham that he will be a bless all the nations, now we're starting to see it unfold through the, the people that come from David's line. And what are they gonna be like? They're gonna be like David in his best moments. But then you see idolatry and you see David descend, you see the kingdoms of Judah and Israel descend, you see them put into exile. And, but, but again, more and more prophecies coming through that I'm going to save you. There's going to be a Messiah. He's not gonna be what you expect. And then a period of silence. And then you have Jesus reclaiming the presence of God that God brought back to the tabernacle, to the temple in Jesus, then comes back and, and he the, the climax of the whole book of the Bible as a story is the cross. That's what it's all pointing to. It's all pointing to this is the climax of the story, guys. This is, this is where it's happening. And then after the cross, what do you have? The Pentecost and the explosion of the church. And then it comes into, we're part of that. That's why you're calling your church 242, right? Acts 242. We're part of this story. This is a real life story. 
The plot is going on right now with real people. This happened in the Middle East, but this is a family in the Middle East who was chosen to be a blessing to you and me. And the story's not done yet, sure it's not. He's coming back. And so can you see your story in this story? How does your story compare to this story? And I'm challenged by those themes that I see in Samuel and in, uh, I see in David and Goliath particularly, that God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. And I think I just love impressing people. I love it when people think I'm awesome. I love being confident. And there's nothing wrong with confidence, but my confidence often comes from my pride. I don't know if you do this, but I'll be honest with you. When, when I'm in a crowd and I feel insecure, what I do is, well, I'm probably smarter than him, I'm more athletic than him, and I'm better looking than him. And I try to find the things that, that, that make me better than them so that I can reclaim some confidence in the midst of my fear and insecurity. And what am I doing but exalting myself? And God tells me, I'm going to humble you if you are like that. What I want is a, is a humble heart. Like, look at David. He was anointed king, and he went back and was a shepherd. He waited for God. He wasn't impatient like Saul. He didn't want to exalt himself. Saul saw his life as a story about what he was and what he had done. David saw his story about who he was and who he belonged to. That's a different way of thinking about your story. It's a more humble way. If I was as gifted as David, I'd probably flaunt it. You know, he had all these gifts. I would strut. If I was as famous as him, you know, I would strut. Look how awesome I am. I would not trust a strong God who delivers humble, obedient, faithful people. I'd probably rely on myself. And as I continue to walk with Jesus and I grow in maturity, I find that I'm less enticed by the praise of men. It doesn't have as much draw to me. I find that I'm actually less afraid of them. I'm less afraid of what people think of me. I'm more familiar with my dark side and my weaknesses. Saul never came to terms with his dark side. But I'm able to look at my dark side sometimes right in the face because God gives me the confidence with faith to do that and to deal with some of those things, that I, issues that I struggle with. Because I'm more established in my relationship of grace with God that even when I'm stripped away and I'm not doing anything for him, he still loves me, embraces me, and accepts me. And that takes away, that love, that unconditional love takes away any fear I have. I don't always live in it. I even often in my prayers, I count myself blessed that I'm not taller and better looking or really good at music or uh, very famous because I think if I had those, I would probably ruin it. I would fall further away from him. I'd just become more proud. But he's given me just enough gifts that I can handle with his help. And I see that as I walk with him, 
He makes me more humble and he exalts me. I don't have to exalt myself. It gives me the confidence. I see another thing that Israel was often impatient and wanted to use God for their own purposes. Um, and I see in myself, sometimes I'm so impatient. I manipulate, force people. I'm very pushy sometimes because I want it on my own timetable, right? But what did David do? He, for years, he hid in the desert, even though he was anointed king and was famous and had his own army. He waited for God's timing. Even when Saul came into the cave, you'll read this later in a few weeks' time, that uh, he had the opportunity to kill him in the dark. He waited because he said, I'm waiting on God's timing. And I th when I read about Saul performing the sacrifices because he didn't want to wait, I'm like, that's just like something I would do. I don't want to wait. Because sometimes I'm too clever for my own good. I'll justify something. I'll, I, I know what I want to do, and I'll just work out a way of justifying it so I can do it, and it sounds all right to other people. And this kind of thing, using God for your own ends, is, is the death to discipleship. That's, I, my heart is, God has called me to be a disciple maker, but it's so tempting and very subtle to make your disciple dependent on you because it makes you feel needed. They need me. But what a real disciple maker should do is set people free in their relationship to God so they don't need you anymore, so that I become less and he becomes more. But if you're using God for your own ends so that you gather some people who love you for your own sake, then that's a death to discipleship. I've also been, as I've been thinking about this story, um, I just think about how David looks at the world, and I'm like, I just don't look at the world that way. I, d I just, I don't have that kind of faith. I'm more like Saul than I am like David. It's the mirror, you know, the characters. And I, I want to take a moment and, and talk to people who maybe struggle with things like me. I, I struggle with doubt a lot. And... Most of the people I see in church, they seem to just get faith. You know, someone tells them uh, about Jesus and they're like, oh yeah, I get it. And I'm like, I don't get it. You know, it's, it seems like every day is a fight to believe for me. It's like the, I have this, this doubt, this gravity that's constantly pulling me to look at the outward appearance and not beyond it. And I, I tend to be pretty skeptical and critical. Like if you tell me something, I'll probably question you or get you to prove it to me. Um, and sometimes we don't really, uh, my experience of church is we haven't really spoken to those people very, very well. We haven't really helped to walk people through doubt, people who struggle with a lot of doubt. Um, we just assume that they believe the Bible and that is the word of God and that when you say God exists that they get it. And not everybody's like that. And so if that's you, um, take heart <laughs> because you can learn to have faith. Actually, you already have faith. Probably, if you're anything like me, you just have some barriers to letting your faith out or living in that faith because the more I realize it, the more I think about faith, I, I see how faith and fear are at two opposite ends. The less faith you have, the more fearful you will be. And the more fear you live in, the less you'll be able to exercise your faith because fear is about being 
critical and pulling down. Faith is about building up and walking forward. And according to David, he looked at this circumstance with the eyes of faith, and he saw what was going to happen. He saw that God was going to deliver him, but it, it wasn't a blind faith. It wasn't wishful thinking that just happened to turn out good in the end. He, sh- he said that God has delivered me from bears and lions in the past. He's done it before, and so I know that he'll do it again. He said that he knew in God's promises and God's covenant to his people Israel that he would deliver them. He saw, maybe saw that there was 40 days. He, you could see in David's motivation that he saw that God would, would act because he knew who God was. He was able to look at it without faith. And I think about my life. If I really do look at this world without faith, then we're all accidents in a meaningless universe which will end in a cold, dead emptiness. Your existence has no purpose and your pain is just bad luck. If without faith, we are nothing more than clever animals, a commodity for slavery or exploitation by the powerful. Without faith, our minds are the product of a random process chanced upon to give us a survival advantage. We should have no confidence that our minds are able to tell us the difference between truth and falsehood because any thought in your head is simply there to give you a survival advantage, not to tell you the truth. Without faith, our brains are just computational machines predetermined to give you an output based on whatever input goes in, and so free will is an illusion, and you're basically at the mercy of your brain chemistry. Without faith, we have no reason to believe that the principles of science are consistent across time and space or that the universe makes any sense, or that you have the capacity to understand it. Without faith, there can be no scientific or intelligent discovery, because you've started with faith that you can believe it, that it's consistent, and it makes sense, and it's intelligible. You already have faith. Every scientist has faith in those three principles. Without faith, love is nothing more than a predetermined neuronal code aimed at giving the lover a survival advantage, Sacrificial or altruistic love is an illusion. Without faith, good and evil are nothing more than preference or social convention, and there's no reason to oppose the monsters in our society that tell us to act out of a battle of will powers. The, um, the will to power, as Nietzsche said. This description of life is at odds with every human being's experience. If faith is not real, and if faith doesn't give you a pathway to real, true knowledge, then your existence is something very different from the way that you're living, and that every human being's experience has. And every one of those things, if faith without faith, will give you a life of extreme fear. Maybe the reason that you're so afraid and troubling, battling anxiety is because your faith, you're not walking in the faith that you have. You're not seeking to grow in faith. Maybe you're here and you're interested in a life of faith, but you're not really walking in it. You're not choosing faith. Well, come and learn this story. Come and learn about what it means to walk in faith, how you can get there. I'm trying to learn how to be more like David than than I am like Saul. How to look at the heart, how to look at what's behind, not just what's on the surface. Maybe you are trying to live a life of faith, but you're paralyzed by fear then let this story sink into your bones. 
David sought humility rather than pride. There's something. If you're trying to live a life of faith, seek humility, not your own exaltation. David wanted to discover and serve God's purposes rather than using God for his own purposes. There's another key. If you want to live the life of faith, seek God's will and not yours. David acted upon what he knew, knew by faith, and he killed a giant and became the king and ancestor of the savior of the world. You all have faith. Live out of it, and you will see the world as it really is, and you'll do extraordinary things for Jesus, and he will come back, and he will save you out of this world that gives us so much fear. So thank you. Let's live by faith. Let's do it together. Let's pray. God, would you give us faith this morning? Would you give us faith to hold on to, to know you? Lord, help us to humble ourselves this morning, to see that there is more than meets the eye, to see your heart. Lord, show us the path as you've given us the characters of Saul and David. Show us the path that David took to believe in you and to know what's happening. Lord, would you waken us up from this illusion that it's all just about the surface experience and help us to, to see the depths of your reality, what you're doing, the grand story of, that you show us and tell us in your word. And help us to live this out. Help us to be extraordinary people. Help us to live that life to the full that you promise whenever we enter into that. In your name we pray, amen.